Support for this episode of Script Apart comes from ScreenCraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted thing. Fortunately, ScreenCraft is here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. ScreenCraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures starring your favorite writers to hands-on career coaching with their excellent writer development team. If it's screenwriting competitions you're after, well, ScreenCraft offers the best around. Their competitions are specific to genre and judged by Oscar-winning filmmakers and top literary reps. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of ScreenCraft. Winners have been staffed on shows at Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, the list goes on. They've also sold scripts and been hired to write films for the likes of Universal, Lionsgate, Blumhouse and Hulu. So if you're an aspiring writer, what are you waiting for? Don't wait to check out ScreenCraft today. Visit ScreenCraft.org or click the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at Arc Studio Pro. Arc Studio is the screenwriting software used to create incredible shows and movies, such as the acclaimed Netflix animation Arcane. It has a ton of features designed to unlock your creativity on the page, whether you're a seasoned industry professional or a first-time writer discovering your voice. Arc is all about minimum distraction and maximum ease of collaboration. There's an outlining whiteboard for mapping out your story, automatic draft management for keeping those scripts safe, and it also offers real-time collaboration similar to Google Docs, making it the easiest way to run a professional writer's room or just to write that great idea for a script that you have with a friend. Try it today. Head to arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart, where you can get $30 off a pro account by using the code friends at checkout. Click the link in today's show notes to take your screenwriting to the next level. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Script Apart. My name's Al Horner, and if you're tuning in for the first time, this is a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies and TV shows. Each episode, a brilliant screenwriter breaks down their first draft of what became a beloved film or episode of TV. Today we have with us the extraordinary Charlotte Wells, writer and director of one of the most affecting feature debuts in recent memory. After Sun is a contemplative drama about a father and daughter on a resort holiday in Turkey, told through the eyes and camcorder footage of 11-year-old Sophie, played by Frankie Corio. Sophie shares a sweet relationship with her father Callum, played by Paul Mescal. Across their holiday, however, she begins to steal glimpses of him, wrestling with problems beyond her comprehension, problems he attempts to hide from the world. It's a story about memory, parenthood, and the heartbreak of growing up, and realizing that your parents are people too, with their own burdens to carry. Inevitably, it's being described as an awards season frontrunner and one of the best movies of the last year. In the conversation you're about to hear, Charlotte tells me how the film began as an exploration of her relationship with her own dad, who she sadly lost age 16. There's a certain overlap between her life and the events of the movie that we unpack in this chat, as well as some big differences between her early drafts of Aftersun and the final film. At various points, the film was set to feature an adult version of Sophie wandering through scenes with her younger self, like a sun-soaked Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. There was also a romantic relationship at the holiday resort for Callum that got jettisoned, and much more melodrama, a more pronounced plot. We talk about why Charlotte stripped away those elements to drill deeper into the father-daughter tensions at the heart of the film what it is about the pressures and repetitions of a family holiday that make for such an interesting backdrop for a story like this, and what exactly is happening in the film's astonishing emotional climax 
a dance sequence set to Queen's Under Pressure, whose lyrics take on a poignant new meaning in the context of Callum and Sophie's relationship. It's a spoiler conversation, so be sure to watch the film on Mubi before tuning in. Okay, let's hand it over straight to Charlotte, who was such a fantastic guest. A big thank you to her for taking time out to talk with me, and a huge thank you as ever to our Patreon community for helping make this episode possible. Head to patreon.com forward slash script apart if you'd like to get involved there. Okay, with no further ado, this is the wonderful Charlotte Wells discussing the first draft secrets of Aftersun. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demeck. Hey Charlotte, welcome to Script Apart. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm well, I say that. I'm just about recovered emotionally from my second watch of After Sun, which on both occasions has kind of knocked me for six. Um, how's it been? God, I almost said, how's it been basking? That's an accidental pun. Uh, how's it been enjoying <laughs> enjoying the aftermath of this movie and, and the myriad ways it's connected with people? Because, uh, yeah, it really struck such an astonishing chord. Yeah, it's its reach has been much more extensive than I ever could have imagined. So it's been an amazing seven months, I think, since we uh, since we screened in Critics Week back in May. Uh, we actually went back into the the mix after that. We hadn't quite finished, uh, and and so um, it's just been amazing. Uh, I mean, I don't really know what to say. It's it's continued to surprise us. I think is the best way to put it at, at just about every turn. And, and that's been a wonderful thing. Did you anticipate at all how how universal a story this would prove to be? Like, not everyone, of course, has experienced the specific circumstances of what uh, the character Sophie goes through in this film. But I don't really know anyone who's been able to watch After Sun and not find themselves reflecting on on their own relationship with the parental figures in their life. You know, like the the kind of parts of their their parents' inner lives that they must have hid or, or tried to shield us from growing up because... I guess that's what an adult does for their child. And in a way, that's that's a, a form of love. Did you predict at all that, that lots of people would be able to relate to that? When you talk about it being a surprise, the success of this film, were you kind of unaware that as many people would be able to tap into this story as they have? Uh, yes, is the, the short and easy answer to that. I mean, I think I've made three short films and they all had a unifying reception in some ways to varying degrees. But... I would say that they all resonated very strongly with a small number of people and alienated, or frustrated, or bored <laughs> much more than a few people. <laughs> and and that was my expectation for this. Uh, and, and that is okay. I, I knowingly make choices along the way that are... are whose intention is is to connect more deeply with people who might resonate with the material rather than trying to to capture everybody. Now, of course, there's some balancing in there and, and that's where feedback comes into play. But I didn't think that like I was I was more focused on on really uh connecting with those those people that I hoped it would connect with. And um I don't think I ever thought it would connect with this many people. I'm sure my producers had higher hopes um, <laughs> than, than I did or expectations uh, and always give me grief. I think mean, one of my producers always says, look, it connected with more than one person. Aren't you, aren't you happy? 
Um, but yeah, I'll always go for the meaningful connection with a few rather than a superficial connection with many. Um, why this has reached so far beyond that, I don't know. I'm open to your theories. Um, <laughs> and maybe it is because you don't have to have had the specific experience represented in the film. There is enough in there about you know, the struggles of of parents or, or seeing your parents as people for the first time of, of the lens that parents go to to protect their kids of growing up and taking that step from childhood toward adolescence. Uh, you know, th- th- there's there's some pretty universal things in there. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that is very much my theory of, of why After Sun has connected. Like, I don't know that I've seen a film before that articulates what it articulates about parent-child dynamics, like how parents put on a performance of everything's okay, even when it's not, yeah. and, and how there's a toll to that performance. Um, so in After Sun, we of course see that in these devastating glimpses through Sophie's eyes. And, um, you know, it, it made me think of small little fragments from my own childhood, how scary it was when I would hear or see the mask slip from my own parents. And I, I guess that must have been uh, commonplace for, for many people viewing this film. Um, were you aware as you approached the film that, yeah, as you say, that is something we don't see on screen often. Often we'll see parent-child dynamics told through a parent's eyes in which they have to live up to a certain responsibility. It's very rare that we see it through through a child's eyes. I didn't overthink it, but I was certainly, I, I set out, to portray a relationship somewhat akin to the one that I had with my dad and lent into what I found interesting about every every facet of that and was aware that I didn't often see the relationship, at least as I experienced it on on screen. You know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the first, but it isn't depicted very often. And I, I was aware of that. Definitely. And and this idea of shielding your kids and, and seeing your parents as people, which tends to happen when they disappoint you, you know, you rarely see them as people because they're overjoyed. <laughs> <laughs> um, you see them as people when they don't live up to your expectations um, and, and they fail to fulfill absolutely that role of parent that they perform for you, you know, and you suddenly see them in one of the other roles that they they have in in life. And yeah, there there is a performance to it. It's such an interesting coincidence to me that um, so many of the films that I really connected with this year share that kernel of autobiography that After Sun has. Um, Spielberg's The Fablemans, for example, quite similarly to your film, it takes like a seed of autobiography and allows it to blossom into its own story that's kind of separate to Stevens. Can you tell me about the benefit of exploring that space between autobiography and fiction? Like from what I understand, After Sun is not a direct one-to-one recreation of something that happened to you. Uh, the character is called Sophie rather than Charlotte. Does, does adding in a buffer of fiction rather than approaching a movie like After Sun as a piece of um, cinematic memoir kind of thing that, that clings to your own experience dogmatically, does that allow a, a, a kind of bit of objectivity as a storyteller? Can, can you put your vulnerability a tiny bit to one side when you have, you know, the pretense, a framework of, okay, this isn't entirely my story. It's another character born from an experience of mine. I mean, I appreciate your entire framing of it in that way. You might be the first person that I've agreed with uh, immediately <laughs> in terms of your your framing of that 
question because it usually comes at me from the other point of view, which is, you know, that that this is autobiography. And I've started to lose a, a sense of what that even means because there is such a desire to draw a straight line between creators or artists and, and their work and the characters on screen. And I have provided this proxy of sorts, which makes that very easy to do, which has been frustrating at points. And, and I've kind of negotiated differently depending on the day, <laughs> but it's nice not to have to negotiate at all because you said it so perfectly. So thank you. Um, yeah, I think it does. I mean, the kernel of the idea was a young father, which was something I hadn't seen on screen too often, a capable young father, and his daughter on holiday. I thought exploring uh, resorts and, and that kind of British holiday maker scene would be fun. It provided a, a finite time and place, uh, kind of limited in, in, in scope. And their relationship and the kind of ups and downs of it. And in that early idea, the, the, the tension in the film kind of came from mostly within that relationship and hit various plot points that moved everything forward. Um, but no matter how hard I try to write that uh, clean three-act structure, plot-driven film, I, I never do. And I think when I was thinking about writing this and outlining, I started just to list things that happened on holidays, things that happened on holidays with my dad, with my mom, just throughout childhood, you know, um, not even all on holiday. And I think that process of remembering and allowing that to kind of form that outline made the film about remembering in a way that I hadn't necessarily expected and could never have set out to do. And so they were certainly like very fictional at first. And in some ways, I mean, I use this, I use this term emotional autobiography really early in this process that maybe in the, the press notes before we ever screened. And it's kind of haunted me ever since because <laughs> it only has provoked the question, what the hell do you mean by that? <laughs> Whereas I, I thought it would, it would um, get me out of having to answer the question at all. But it's true that, that the characters, they're certainly based on on me and my dad in in kind of intent, like the 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 very basics of of their characters. But it's really the emotion I think that is most mine, and and these rave sequences which build the emotional climax in the film that most closely represents me, and ultimately the process of writing this film. So I do think that building fiction around fact it, it does provide a buffer. And it provided me a buffer here to reach something more emotionally truthful than I thought I was setting out to write. But the, the truth is, I can imagine like writing something else. And this is somewhat true of the like I make three short films and two of them, there's an easy line to draw between me and a character if you feel so inclined. The third one, there isn't. And in a lot of ways, that is the most personal because I do think that there's a freedom to knowing you won't be assigned a character and assigned an experience that people will believe that, that you had one for one as it's depicted on screen. You mentioned a moment ago your struggle to write a clean, conventional three-act structure. But am I right in thinking, like, your first drafts, they very much were kind of, as you've put it, more conventional and um, and that a big part of the, the rewriting process was was kind of taking away, explaining less, 
making it less melodramatic rather than having big plot points that that kind of manipulate you as a viewer. Can you talk us through that yeah. that, that process and what that first yeah. draft looked like? Absolutely. I mean, that first draft was, I just, I thought it was behind me because I usually keep it to hand. There's something about having that first draft around that keeps me a little bit sane. Um, <laughs> it, it, it was about 70 pages. There, there were more characters. There weren't explosions, <laughs> but you know, there were more, if not conventional, just familiar interactions and arcs and i think what i was getting at before is that like a lot of the tension came from within their relationship you know um that there was a woman who callum you know ha had a bit of a thing with and i just felt at a certain point that as i was pushed be because it had a resemblance to a more conventional script i mean it always had the rave and that surprised me on the page and so it was never this clean version i maybe set out to write like it was a very in instinctive first draft in a way um which is what i, I set out to do and, and then intended to shape it from there did the amount of adult sophie in the story kind of differ at all across drafts like it's a it's a beautiful sprinkling of her adult life that we see in the final edit and in the shooting script like she's in a seemingly happy relationship but there is something that haunts her was there anything more of who she became after the events that we we see on that holiday uh no but in the first draft of the script she was on the holiday too not as an adult but as like a scrooge figure of sorts oh like a christmas um, past situation yeah that's interesting um and and she i mean this is funny i i'd almost forgotten about this and until you asked that question but she was there passively until gradually each time you see her she becomes more engaged in the environment at first picking something up and then ultimately although the film always had the rave and the hotel dance sequence um, as it plays out in the final film. That was the very end of the first draft of the script. The climax of sorts was this confrontation between them, between adult Sophie and, and Callum um, on the holiday around a pool table. And ultimately it just felt like that wasn't contributing enough, that she was too passive it, it wasn't really elevating scenes and that it was getting in the way of allowing the viewers to feel it for themselves, you know? And I think that's, that's the, the gap that there is in the film for the audience to step into was taken in that first draft. And, and so taking her out allowed the audience to do that for themselves. She's still there. She's in every single scene uh, in, in how Greg and I chose to frame it and how we considered point of view over the course of making it. It's extremely subtle. It's not necessarily something that an audience could articulate. Um, but the idea when you see her on the couch at the end, which wasn't in the first draft or the second, it took some time to, to, to figure out that ending. And it was really through trial and error of, of trying to work out what, um, like how to how to unify these different worlds and points of view um the the idea was that that never be like a got you surprise moment but that your understanding of that has gradually built to a point where it is inevitable 
that is her on the couch watching the fizzy track. Um, and then so I'm often asked if there was more and the answer is, I suppose, yes. But if anything, it feels like there is more of her out, out with that draft where she was on the holiday or present in the spaces. I'd say every other draft had less of her. Um, and and that seeing her reflection in the opening scene as you do, which people certainly don't pick up always, um, like that was an editorial decision, you know, again, like trying trying to work to find the balance between between the different points of view in the film and 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 establishing Sophie as an adult as the overarching point of view that that binds everything together. Yeah. And, and was After Sun always the title? It, it's such a beautiful title in that it operates like in so many different ways, like it connects to the holiday setting of the movie. But, you know, After Sun is a product that soothes you in the aftermath of experiencing pain, which is perhaps the process that adult Sophie is going on in this movie. I guess it's also that in the movie, in a more literal sense, it's after the sun goes down that Callum has his his real moments of darkness. Can you tell me about what the title means to you? And yeah, whether there was ever another another name in the mix for this film? There was never another name in the mix. It was after Sun before I had written a word. I never overthought it. I didn't consider the various readings of it, which I did for absolutely every other frame in the film. And I think that's because it just was immediately perfect. I didn't really have to interrogate it or articulate for myself any of the things that you just did. It it just was. And I think that's how titles always are. They're they're either that easy and come to you without any effort or they're utterly impossible and never feel quite right. Um, and I'm I'm grateful in this case that that it was the the former. So you've mentioned the rave scenes there a few times. That's that's where this story begins. The script begins with Sophie, 31, stood motionless in a frenetic crowd, eyes closed. She is out of place in time. A warm crew neck jumper in contrast to the 90s rave attire and naked torsos that surround her. A strobe casts her in light, then darkness, light, then darkness. Um, so my read of these scenes and and the rave as this motif that appears through the film, uh, well, maybe this is a projection of my own relationship with music and the role that it's played in my life. But my interpretation was, you know, you can try and distract yourself from the baggage of past traumas. You can try to drown them out with loud music as adult Sophie is doing in the club here. But these traumas will still find you. And um, I guess clubs are such a place of letting go too, you know, and and that sometimes invites these old ghosts in. How did the club scenes come about? And uh, yeah, what, what did they mean to you, Charlotte? Um, I mean, I'm always like, only because you've articulated it so nicely, do I feel able to almost decline that question? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, what, what I was interested in as in terms of, the space, I mean, there's lots of different reasons and I can speak to what maybe inspired it in a second. But I think for me, there's this idea that it was a space that Callum occupied that she knew of or learned of later. And so there's some idea of stepping into his space, even though it's very much her um, in in her mind, I suppose, if you want to put it that way. Um, and, and that it is a place of escape but that sometimes the escape can also become a prison in its own way, you know, and, the, and that it, it becomes something that at first, I remember how it was written on the page and it was written that when you first see Callum, it feels that he is there and he's free and, and in control. And by the end, as you get closer, 
he isn't free. You know, he 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 isn't in control. Uh, and that is that is the kind of evolution of, of perception of being in that space. I had produced a film for my editor called I'm the One Who's Singing. It was a short. It's the last thing I produced about six months before I finally wrote the first draft. And it was also shot by Greg, who shot this. We all went to film school together. And it opened with a club scene and a strobe. And I think the image just was on my mind, you know? It wasn't in my outline, although I've been trying to fact check that. And I cannot find that outline for the life of me. I wish I could. It's lost. I don't know where. Um, it wasn't in the outline, though. And that image just appeared on the page. And I set music to it on the page in those early drafts. And the track that I chose has a really slow beginning and then a beat drops. And I always imagined it cutting just to that point. So just this building, building, building feeling at the opening of the film. And just as the beat's about to drop, you're you're kind of thrown out of it. And um and I just followed it, you know, I followed it. And in that first draft, it, it was uh, this blending of the holiday and the DB footage and the rave and Sophie being inside of the scenes. But the rave, I, I like those, those were always my favorite things. The rave, uh, the scene where Callum's our hand is in the bucket and he's cutting off the cast. These are these are things I remember writing and thinking, how cool. Like I don't know where that came from. I've never been there. I've never done that. And yet, like there it is. The, that's the best part of writing. That trying to recreate something, trying to have something reflect an experience you had or an emotion you had is hard. You know, it's hard to find balance, but there's something so easy about discovery. And of course, it's coming from somewhere, but I don't like to ask too many questions uh, about that. It's nice just to trust what you find in front of you. And and that was true of the rave. Uh, and there's a lot of trust in it. And there's a lot of doubt in it. And it was it was the hardest thing alongside Callum's private struggle to balance every single step of the process every single draft it was always a question what is this what's it doing you don't need it you do need it it makes no sense it's illegible take out camera movements you know um but it, it was you know it, it's the expression of feeling that is ultimately what the film's about and there was no film without the rave and eventually that became clear to me but it took a bit of time Hey, this is Al, just jumping in to tell you about two of our great sponsors this week. If you've written a script and wondering what step to take next, well, you need to check out We Screenplay. We Screenplay not only offers amazing free resources for emerging writers, like virtual events where your questions are answered by leading Hollywood professionals, it's also the industry's number one script coverage service. With incredible 72-hour turnaround and format-specific feedback tailored to your specific goals, We Screenplay is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their career, from first-time writers to Oscar winners. So if your script is ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned and staffed as a direct result of their real-life industry meetings and hands-on workshops. Don't stay stuck, We Screenplay wants to help. Head to wescreenplay.com to find out more or click the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from Arc Studio Pro. Screenwriting to me is all about immersion. I want to stay immersed in that dreamy, fantasy-like state while I weave my story and craft my characters. I don't want to be distracted by anything and I certainly don't want to be thinking about text formatting. 
Arc Studio Pro understands that. It's so intuitive, it has a minimal and dare I say beautiful interface that allows me to stay completely focused on the story I'm trying to tell. To take your screenwriting to the next level, visit arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart, where you can either download a free version or get $30 off a pro account to unlock its full host of amazing features. Use the code FRIENDS at checkout to get that discount. That's arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. We move from from that rave opening into the sort of introduction of, of Sophie and Callum through their camcorder footage. I, what's so what's so beautiful and so true about that whole element to the film to me is that uh, you know for so many people these little home movies are all that's left of, of a person after they they pass on and uh, there's a I think there's a particular intimacy to that era of home movies too where it, it's kind of less guarded perhaps because the films people people capture on their phones of loved ones today like inherently they're often kind of being filmed to be broadcast. It's, it's being recorded with a purpose or at least the possibility of being posted to social media. Yeah. There's something more lifelike and still about that era of camcorder footage. And we see it in After Sun. Can you tell me about some of your uh, thought process around those scenes and what you left, what you wrote versus left unwritten in those scenes in the script for, for Paul and Frankie to find in the moment? I mean, those scenes were written like anything else in the film. Um, they were scripted. But I also knew that I wanted to give them the opportunity to shoot. And in fact, wish or imagined, if not wish, that, that they had been able to do that more. The reality is we had a camera that I found on eBay with a 20-year-old battery that lasted about five minutes, which made it hard <laughs> to just give them the camera to mess around with. And, and you also have the predicament of costumes. Um in backgrounds and, and other things that made that a little bit harder than I maybe imagined. But it was about that. It was about creating footage that in the very first draft of the script, I would say that there was a bit more like plot in, in the DV footage, if not plot, like, like using it as exposition, allowing conversations to take place, like allowing it to explain or, or add. And then I was reminded by watching footage and it's amazing how many people's holiday videos from the 1990s are on YouTube. Just like one hour of here's a pigeon in a <laughs> pond outside my window. I mean, it's amazingly tedious. It's so great. And, and it was about capturing that. It became driven towards what are these records that we have? They're never what we want them to be, rarely. During the writing process, I received a tape of me and my dad. It's the only tape I have. And his face is never on screen. It's uh, three of us around a, a chessboard um, where uh, our bodies are all here and, and the, uh, the camera cuts our heads off. So it's just our torsos sitting on a couch. And it's, you know, uh, the, the kind of cruelest twist of fate that I can only laugh at, that that, that is all I have. And so it did drive this idea of it not being what you would want it to be, you know, it not being useful, it not being explanatory, it just being these moments that were captured, you know? And of course it serves a purpose and it was constructed thoughtfully and thoughtfully with the idea that it could also be played back within the holiday and Callum could feel comfort in it in one moment and, and not in another. And in fact, I often speak about it as, 
it was on the page and in many cuts of the film forgetting it changed in the final cut. But when Callum is playing back the footage for the first time at night when he can't sleep, it was always supposed to be the scene where his arm is taking out of the shower and she's talking about him as though, you know, like a TV presenter or something. And she says, you know, like the wonderful, amazing one-armed Callum Aaron Patterson. Um, and the idea that that would play twice in the film and, um, and kind of take on a different meaning each time just provided this amazing, yeah, tool for point of view. And I think that people of our approximate generation do see a beauty in it that everybody doesn't necessarily. Like I had a, I had a, an old film school professor come into the room, uh, the edit room, and she was like, you're going to kill that footage. It's impossible to look at. Really? Um, it, it's going to give people vertigo if they're up close in the cinema. Um, and she was in the audience at the New York Film Festival and I kind of called it out and had to apologize for adding more <laughs> instead of taking it away because we tried to take it away and the film really lost something. It's also amazing to, to hear the way that people talk about it as though it's more than a few minutes in the total runtime of the film. Like it has such an outsized impact for how long it's actually on screen. You mentioned it there, but it is such an interesting creative choice. Callum is nursing a broken arm when we meet him. There's no like strict narrative need for him to have that. So it, it kind of made me wonder whether you wanted to imply either a certain woundedness or uh, perhaps whether it was like just a nice texture to add into the film because people in real life break bones, they accumulate scrapes and bruises. I know I do. And yeah, it implies a lived in character. Um, can you tell me about that that choice? Yeah, I think I just liked it as, as this like obstacle of sorts for him physically beginning of the film, you know, that, that, he set this holiday up with all the best of intentions for them to have a great time. And he can't actually get in, in the water. Now eagle eyed viewers, I'm sure have pointed out that when they run into the sea on the first day, he's not wearing the cast, which hopefully very few people notice <laughs> because we try to crop in so that it is not wholly visible. Um, but I had this vision in the script of never seeing the sea until the very, very end of the film and withholding that. And as it worked out, it just wasn't that important. And, and the film hadn't quite been realized from that point of view, which was much more in the script. The idea of the, like being confined by these hotels and really boxed in and then at a certain point of breaking out of it. And it turned out there was a lot more value in just seeing them have this really joyous moment of running into the sea that outweighed like this idea that wasn't even really felt in, in the execution. But yeah, the idea of the, the 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 broken arm was just to provide this thing that just made everything he did that little bit harder, harder to untie her shoes, harder to light a cigarette on the balcony. This thing that kind of prevented them from from being together in the way that he wanted to be at the beginning of the holiday, and also led for the scene where where he takes it off. And that scene, I think, had a bit more import in the script than it even did in the final cut, um, for whatever reason. Um, even though it. it it works really well and, and it it was shot as I always hoped it would be because we actually chose the location based on based on the shot, um, based on wanting this two shot, which was in the script of seeing him in the bathroom and her on the bed. You know, it was in, I think it was in the first draft. And uh, there's some things that really you become fixated on and that that was one of them. And that idea, I mean, we touched on it a little bit earlier, but that idea of centering the film on a holiday, like it occurred to me that holidays are, are like a family occasion that are heaped with a certain 
expectancy, I suppose. Like you're expected to have good quality family time because we paid for it. And, you know, yeah, there's, there's a pressure almost to find a level of connection that isn't always leverageable. Can you take yeah. me through like the importance of that and sort of the power, I suppose, of a holiday setting for a story like this? Yeah, I mean, when you, when you think about tension or suspense or building pressure over the course of a film like this, I think that like the holiday just has something of all of that inherent to it and inherent to how it unfolds. And no matter how good a time you're having, there are always going to be dips you know and it was something that I remember when we shot that dip day um after the tender sequence where it starts with them having breakfast and then they're by the pool and then the water polo and it, it was really hard to find the balance of that to kind of find the tedium in the holiday without boring the audience and and there's also just a rhythm to those holidays like a repetitiveness uh, which again was probably more on the page than it was on the screen or is on the screen, uh, and, and that's okay. Like some things are, are, are great in theory and don't necessarily quite work out in practice. But on the page, every day began with kind of a series of interstitial shots of the environment, where everything was pretty much the same. Um, one thing we lost when you see Callum on the balcony in that long one shot, which finds Sophie on the bed in the first night, and then it cuts to his back in the morning. It took us a really long time to get to that, which is absolutely the best way that scene could play out because it required losing a couple of things that had always been on the page and that always felt important on the page. And one was Callum smoking on the balcony where he was sitting, like sitting perched on this third floor balcony, smoking a cigarette, which is like a very straightforward image laced with this feeling that something's a bit off. Why is he sitting so precariously, even though he looks quite stable? And also looking over the balcony and and seeing, Charles also presented a bit of a, a issue with point of view because you never see Callum's direct point of view in the film, and this broke that. Where you saw somebody putting the sunbeds away, and then the cut the next morning was somebody taking them back out. And so just this idea of everything resetting in a certain way in the morning, no matter what's going on with people. I think that's still true in the film is that place has this enduring quality that relationships don't. And there are a lot of shots in the film that I consider almost being out of time, whether it's a paraglider in the sky or or the surface of the sea um, or, or some of the shots of the hotel that feel like they could be then, that feel like they could be now, uh, that, that you would never really know because place endures in, in a way that yeah people in relationships don't. You mentioned the balcony scene there, which uh, and, the, and the way that it visually connotes that something's a little bit off. That's so important in a story like this where, you know, you have a parent-child uh, dynamic where, of course, the, the dad is not going to announce to the child that they're battling demons, that they're struggling with certain things. So you have to find a workaround, like behaviours and objects that commun communicate silently that, that Callum is perhaps struggling to cope with certain pressures. Um, you know, for example, uh, in addition to the balcony scene, there are self-help books uh, that Callum is surrounded by. He does Tai Chi. There's, there's obviously something he's trying to be a better person. He's trying to find ways to cope with whatever is weighing down on him. Were there more explicit mentions at all across any of the drafts about what Callum 
is facing, about what he's struggling to cope with? I mean, that that was a process and, and that character and my understanding of him evolved over the course of writing. Um, it was more, was it more explicit? I should have pulled the first draft out before we'd had this conversation. There is certainly a conversation. There is at least one quite explicit conversation in the first draft um, between him and Belinda, the Tourette, who plays a bigger role. As I strip back the script to find a kind of intimacy in it between the two characters and removed what felt like ultimately just distractions uh, or, or devices that suited a film, but not um, didn't feel true to this experience. I kind of built out a clearer sense for myself of what exactly was wrong with Callum. I had to, I think, because there, there had to be specificity to my writing, even if there isn't specificity in the mind of audiences. You know, there, there had to be enough that, I mean, mental illness is really messy and complicated and symptoms overlap and things are hard to diagnose and often misdiagnosed. So I was balancing these questions over the course of, of writing until I had an understanding of exactly what it was. I was trying to do it in a way that felt like it would be legible ultimately to an audience in the way that I wanted it to be, which is that you understand that something is profoundly wrong. He doesn't necessarily understand exactly what and why, other than that he experiences these moments of desperation, you know, like absolute desperation. I told Paul everything about the character from my perspective. And I think he promptly tried to set that aside, wanted to know, and then set it aside so that he could build his own way into the character. And and he's the one who first articulated that, that Callum doesn't, like Callum probably can't articulate exactly what's wrong and why. And I think that's right. Um, but it was like the rave, the, the struggle. I, I went through the Sundance Writers Labs and I synthesized 45 pages of notes from the writer lab into what's up with Callum you know I mean that was the that was the question that was the that was what everybody was struggling with and it was true a few months later when I went through the director's lab and until I had one session with somebody who just wouldn't let me off the hook wouldn't let me off the hook wouldn't let me kind of uh, I don't know um talk my way out of the the question and after that I I did a major redraft where I had every scene on an index card and I laid out on the floor all of Callum's private moments. Those became the anchors to that last draft of the script. So I had a really, really clear understanding for myself of how it evolved and what I was unveiling at each point. One of the big moments in the film, uh, the biggest perhaps, certainly like the, the emotional kind of climax of the film to me is the dance sequence to Under Pressure. Um, I was surprised to find, yeah, that, that song choice in particular that wasn't in the script. How did this scene come about? How did you approach it on the page? And, and what's happening in that moment to you? Exactly as happens on screen is what's on the page. It's, it's one of the closest parts in the whole film, I would say. Um, I'd have to fact check that. But <laughs> yeah, that, that is, is, yeah. That is, that is my impression. I mean, it's, it's funny. I haven't, I printed the script before um, we started cutting and I never looked at it until the last week where I reread it. I reread the first draft because I think there is a real purity of intention in that first draft, which is why I like to keep it close, even though it's a mess and it's not where we ended up. I think the core of the film is there. 
Um, and, and I reread our shooting draft to make sure that we hadn't totally screwed this up. <laughs> um, but the, the cutting between the spaces, um, I mean, it's pretty close to what it was in the very first draft, that sequence. I mean, it's more refined. There's more intent, but it, it always ended with this kind of tussle, tussle between them and in a letting of him go in, in a certain way. Yeah, the song, the, the song and the music was always going to be a nightmare. And in fact, it's lucky that Under Pressure was the first thing that we brought into the edit and it worked. I couldn't have told you those are the lyrics before I did it. Maybe again, like the title, my uh, subconscious was doing me a favor. Or maybe not. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I uh, I think when we submit that first cut to our producers, if they told us it was an outrageously horrible decision, we would have agreed and and, uh, and replaced it because it, it seemed so. It it seemed I don't know, but it seemed like giving allowing the lyrics to provide a degree of exposition that we'd avoided throughout the whole film and issued throughout the whole film, not with a goal to to confused but the goal to allow people in and to allow people to to feel it rather than be told it but it just felt like it worked just felt like it worked and um yeah fortunately some people seem to agree was it a similar case with the song choice for uh the karaoke scene losing my religion did that have any any reason behind it yeah i had thought about different options for that but it was that was my first instinct and i thought about alternatives but nothing felt right i think the problem with music in this film across the board not problem but challenge is because the film is so quiet that anytime you let music come to the foreground people are going to listen to the lyrics the lyrics are going to start doing work that you didn't necessarily imagine them doing and if you want music that suddenly is just a fact and losing my religion felt i mean i, I like losing my religion for lots of reasons one like it's an absolute uh, banger it's a banger. I remember <laughs> singing it in the living room of my grandparents. I was age five and my uncle laughing so hard. I ran out crying, uh, which is totally fair that the laughing that like that you have a five-year-old, you know, like <laughs> screaming their heart out to losing my religion by R.E.M. <laughs> the lyrics are also not quite as they seem in that song, you know, which I, I really liked. Um, and it just, it just felt like the right balance, you know, it, it felt like the lyrics were appropriate, maybe lent a little bit too, uh, directly to, to their circumstances, but you know, it, everything was, was going to actually, do you know what? I kind of lie because in an early draft of the script, but I don't think it was a full draft. She sings karaoke with the teenager and I think they sung <laughs> Lady Marmalade. <laughs> and the idea is that like they kind of goad her into something that is like not wholly appropriate, you know, and she becomes aware of her status as like a bit of a mascot within the group. But as soon as she was singing alone, it was, well, I've not thought about that for a long time. It was, it was losing my religion. And um, yeah, it worked. Other moments were discovered like uh, Catatonia, which I think m might be one of my, my favorite musical moments in the film, just ran over its scene on the timeline one day. And it's that point at which the song quietens and the lyrics were just so perfect. And again, like I never could have articulated that that's what they were. And then suddenly they were playing over the pen of the, the landscape and the sea. And it just was like such an exciting discovery. But yeah, you're kind of working like with or against it, no, no matter what you do. 
So the final shot of the movie uh, has Callum holding the camcorder, exiting a door into this surreal airport-like corridor. And yeah, we see him entering the rave that's been a motif of the movie. How did you land on this as the parting shot of Aftersun, the image you were going to end this story on? And um, I guess like, I'm really curious, there's been obviously so many interpretations of that scene. To me, it's quite clear what's happening. Why was it important to you to imply rather than explicitly state what happens to Callum in the end there, Charlotte? It is in the script. It was in our shooting script. The only difference between what's on screen and what's on the script or what's in the script is that the camera keeps moving in the script and it finds Sophie back on the couch and then it, I think it found the sea, that shot of them sitting their backs to the sea. Um, I think the intention had been that you kind of find them at that point in time again. But as it stood in the cut, the image of him walking through those doors was just so strong. It, it was a final shot and you didn't need anything more. And I was a little bit wary of ending on Callum and not Sophie in terms of point of view. But I kept the soundscape of her apartment and of the baby and that felt strong enough, you know, um, to, to, to us. But uh, yeah, I mean, it wasn't in the first cut, the, the, the first draft, the first draft began and ended with a rave definitively as the first cut did actually um but it just felt important to find a way to 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 bind these worlds together in terms of um what happens to Callum it's clear to me uh it's funny I I was I was at something um the other night with Todd Solans who was a, a professor of mine and he said on stage this line that he would often say in class he said make a film that only um you can make but not only you can sit through <laughs> <laughs> and um yeah it's 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 tricky like being clear for yourself about what you're doing but giving the audience access to it. and sorry why I remember Todd now my brain is like so slow this morning because I remember this interaction I was looking I was looking to kind of match him with like a story after he said that and I was reminded of um this moment in class that a student said good friend said it's clear to me and he said I'm sure it's clear to you I'm sure it's a cathedral of genius in your mind but I don't know what the hell's going on. <laughs> and and so I like I thought of that when I said it's clear to me. It's clear to me. And from screening the film and sharing it, I think it's clear to lots of people. Some of those people have radically different takes on what's clear to them. And that is because it there is that space for an audience and, and for its meaning to be informed by the experiences that any given individual brings when they sit down in the cinema or at home or wherever they see it. And that's okay. And I knew that space would be there. Uh, I learned that from my shorts. And so I worked to refine it this time around, knowing that it's inherent in the films that I make and my reluctance to to provide exposition for things, because I would rather that they're felt than explained. And that does confuse and frustrate people. I know that. But I do think it allows for a more profound connection. Um, so what is clear to me, I think is clear to some people. And I think those people maybe share similar experiences to to the one that I had and what drove me to, to make this film. But I'm not going to deny other people's read on the film because that space is there and I want it to be there. And I think ultimately it doesn't change people's read on the feeling at the end of the film. And that's what's important. And just finally, Charlotte, you know, every film has a personal element for a creator. Of course, there was an emotional sort of starting point, an emotional seed for you with this film. Now that you're kind of, now this film is out in the world and it's being received the way it's being received, 
Has the has a sense of release come over you, a sense of catharsis? Did that come in the writing of the project or or is it only now, as is often the case when I speak to filmmakers who've who've embarked on a project with with some sort of autobiography within, is it only now that kind of the emotional tsunami is following? Like where are you at emotionally having put this film? No, it was the first draft. And that's why I have such a special place for that draft, because it was the purest kind of outpouring of of expression without overthinking without considering what it would mean to anybody else and and with kind of permission just just to follow wherever it went you know knowing nobody ever needed to read it it was just for me and I think that is where even though I suppose there are lots of ways in which it did become more personal or are exposing like that was where I was exercising all of my own questions you know like it was getting to that point where if I set out to make this film to confront parts of my life I hadn't adequately or to ask questions I hadn't been willing to those were all asked in the lead up to that first draft you know and and so everything that followed really became about the craft of filmmaking and how to tell this story in a way that would be accessible to other people and how to create these characters and, and to understand for myself that their personalities and hopes and dreams and fears and struggles and all of those things. But yeah, for me, that feeling came with the very first draft. And so everything since has really just been about filmmaking. Well, it's such an astonishing achievement. I'm so grateful for you for, for making the film and of course, for taking time out to chat with me today. Thank you so much, Charlotte. Thank you. You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. <laughs>